The mission-minded are those who wish to frame and shape their life around the gospel of Jesus. Now, all Christians should be mission-minded. We should all, every Christian should seek to do that. But frankly, the majority aren't. And I'm not talking about the nominal Christians of Australia. The majority of churchgoers in our city today are not shaping and framing their life around the gospel of Jesus. Church-going is the thing they do on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night. Their next-door neighbour plays golf, and on the other side, the other person plays tennis, and the other side, the other person beyond that stays at home and watches television. We just have our hobby as opposed to their hobby. Now, that's not what mission-mindedness is about and not our network is about. We're talking about framing and shaping our whole lives around the gospel of Jesus. Does this mean that we're all going on the mission field or becoming ministers? The answer to that, of course, is yes and no. Yes, that is one of the ways to shape your life around the gospel of Jesus, especially if you have the gifts to do such a thing. But no, that's not the only way to shape your life around the gospel of Jesus, especially if you don't have the gifts to go and do it. But we call it mission-minded because it's a matter of mindset of your hopes, of your aspirations, of your goals and plans for life, your decisions that you're going to make, how you think about the rest of your life. And we want to talk to you about it. That's why we need a long weekend. That's why there is time in the afternoons to talk individually. That's why we meet in small groups. We want to spend time helping you to talk about it because there are not that many places where you can talk about it. Strangely, you would think church is a place, but we've well, we have to keep up with the rugby scores, don't we? We don't need we really do need to know whether Georgia beat Romania in the World Cup. That's critically important. Uh, any Georgians here? Any Romanians here? Well, there we go. That's why we all had to find out the poor people. <laughs> uh, and, and there's all the other things you've got to talk to about church, haven't you? That we don't actually get down to talk about tin tacks. Who are you? How have you come to know Christ? How are you going in your life in Christ? What are the situations of life you're in now? What are you planning to do to change that? How are you going to make Christ the supreme Lord and ruler, not just of little bits, but of all of the bits that are you? And how can you meet up and connect and talk with other people about these big matters? The weekend, in a sense, is only just the catalyst for ongoing conversations. And for some of you who come from churches where there's three or four of you here, that's an easy to keep the ongoing conversation, which again is so important. Then we talk with the ones who don't have fellowship like this in their home church so that we get in touch with each other and can continue to encourage each other as we go. Over recent years, I've been taught to talk of the gospel ministry under the heading of three C's. And so we have an outline of the talk, by the way, as to where we are. I can't remember the page it's on, but it's got to be the first one, hasn't it? Page six, so there you go. And the three C's is where I'm up to. That is, the knowledge of God gives rise to these three C's. Conviction, character, and competency. Convictions, character, and competencies. Last year, we looked at the subject of... Uh, the, the uh, convictions. This year we're looking at character. Now the world only pays attention to competency. But God's people are declaring his word and so our convictions are much more important than our competencies and our character shaped by the word of God is much more important than our competency. 
So we don't start off saying, what are you good at? What are you bad at? We start off with, what are your convictions? What are your character? Let me show it in a series of slides that we have here. But we've started already. That, uh, see, the understanding of God's servant, you've got to understand yourself. God's servant comes about his knowledge by the knowledge of God. And you have these competencies. But I'm standing in the way, so I'll get out of the way to say it for you here. You have all kinds of competencies. There, where are we up to in clicking our way through? Oh, competencies are lost over there. Go to the next one then. And that's where the competency should be there, you see. <laughs> but the knowledge of God for God's servants will help us know what to do with our competencies. Go to the next one. Boy, this is what happens when you move from one computer to another. Because our convictions and character is really in the box with the, uh, this is where this is, you see. <laughs> it's all gone skew. That should be down in there. That is, the knowledge of God affects both our convictions and character, which affect each other all the time. Uh, as you come convinced of the truth, you are to put it into practice in your life. As you put it into practice in life, you'll come to understand your convictions more clearly. Those two things are connected, and they are what the servant of God is. They are the fundamentals and important things. The competencies we have are our gifts, our aptitudes, our abilities, and they come to us the next one. I don't know how the arrow's going to work next time. Yeah, they come to us, but they really are not the important thing. These things, next one, have to be slowed up into our character and convictions. That is, because my mother taught me to do certain things, because my school teachers taught me to do certain things, because I have certain abilities. But those abilities are the same whether I was a Christian or a non-Christian. I could do that before I was a Christian. I can do this after I'm a Christian. And those things are important. They're gifts of God. But what I've got to do is bring those gifts of God into my convictions and my character. Because that's really what is critically important. And so that you can lead a youth group tells me nothing as to whether you should be the youth group leader. Nothing. Because if you haven't got the right convictions, or if you haven't got the right character, you're going to lead the youth group effectively in the wrong direction. That's, the, that's worse than not having you, isn't it? Your competency must be governed by your character and your convictions. And where do you get your character and convictions from? From the Word of God. From the knowledge of the Word of God come these things. So, that's what we're doing. We're looking then last year at our convictions. This year we're looking at our character. Next year we'll look at some competencies if we're running the conference again next year. Our morning Bible studies this time are going to be on Titus. Because Titus has to address the people living in Crete about their Christian character. And what has he got to do about it? Well, I won't steal the thunder of the Bible studies. In the evening talks, we're going to look at the character of the man of God, and then the character of the evangelist, the character of the pastor, and the character of the man of prayer. Now, we can look at the the competencies of, you know, most people, how are you going to be an evangelist? Well, let me tell you what you're going to be able to do to be an evangelist. But they're your competencies. They're important, but not nearly as important as, have you got the character of a man who can be the evangelist? That's much, much more important. 
And what are the convictions that are going to drive you to evangelise? And when you evangelise, what is it you're going to actually preach? Because you can be a terrific evangelist for Muhammad, or for Apple Max, or for Holdens, or for All Blacks. You can be an evangelist for anything. What we're talking about is being a Christian evangelist. And the Christian part is the critical part. And that's about character and convictions. So this time in particular, our character. All on board where we're going for the weekend? Here, that's where we're going. So let me commence with the question, who is the man of God? Because tonight's about the character of the man of God. Now the phrase occurs in the Old Testament, but only twice in the New Testament. There'll be a bit of Bible flipping in uh, tonight's talk and the last one that I give also. Um, the other two others are going to talk, but I don't know, but I'm going to flip a few times. So come with me to 1 Timothy 6, 11. See the two references we have to the phrase man of God. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. But, sorry, give you a bit of time to get there. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. And the other one's just over a page or two. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, they're the two New Testament references to the man of God. But who is he? Well, if you've got an ESV, you'll notice your footnote there. I don't know if the other Bibles have this. I suspect they don't. But the footnote there, footnote two, and if you're under the age of 30, you can read it. That is a messenger of God. The phrase echoes a common Old Testament expression. Because the word messenger in the Bible is a slightly different word. It's the word angel. I'm not quite sure I'm happy with that description. I think it's more than a messenger. It has to do with leadership, which is a biblical term for taking responsibility. The world leads in all kinds of manners. You can read leadership manuals about this style of leadership and that style of leadership and how you exercise leadership. And people who aren't leaders generally need to read lots of books on the subject and never become them. But the essence of leadership is taking responsibility in Christian thinking. That's how you exercise leadership, by taking responsibility. And it's the man of God who is to do that. And I'm sure the ESV footnote's right. This is the echo of the Old Testament man of God. For who is the Old Testament man of God? Well, when you look at it up, it's all kinds of men. Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha. They're all called the man of God. Now, they are all the great leaders of the people of God who lead God's people by the word of God. I mean, David's a king. And Moses does all kinds of things, but yet they lead God by his word. They are the leaders of the nation. And as such, it's not the person of God, but the man of God. For it's man's duty and responsibility and joy 
to exercise leadership, that is to take responsibility. Just as it's man's shame and sinfulness to excuse himself from leadership and to avoid responsibility. A real man will stand up and take responsibility. A pathetic creature who happens to be of the male persuasion will refuse to take leadership responsibility and stand back and let others, always, on every occasion. Now, the issue of men taking leadership or failing to do so is the whole episode of Deborah in the Bible in Judges chapters 4 and 5. It's emphasised at the beginning of the book of, uh, the beginning of the account, how Deborah, a woman, a wife, a prophetess, of all things, was leading Israel. Something was wrong. There was a woman leading Israel. And what was wrong, if you read the two chapters, is that the men of Israel were not willing to stand up and be counted. And so when the enemy of God under the leadership of Sisera came down, the men all stood around quaking and, and not knowing what to do. And even though God told Barak to go and fight, Barak wouldn't do it. And so Deborah called Barak down and said, why aren't you doing what God says to do? And he says, well, I don't know about going up there. I'm not good at doing this. And, and she had to goad him into going and fighting. She also warned him that because he wouldn't do what he was supposed to do, that he wouldn't be given the victory and the honour. A woman was going to humiliate him because it was going to be a woman who was going to get the honour of victory in the battle. For it was the woman who was going to kill Sisera. Those of you who don't know the events, you might like to read Joel, uh, you might like to read about Jael and the tent peg. And uh, if you know the story, never lie around a tent with a woman who's got a tent peg available or keep your temples covered or something or other. It's one of the gory stories of the Bible that every little boy who's ever heard it in Sunday school can recount for you. But Listen how pathetic Commander Barak sounds and the condemnation of his weakness is prophesied by Deborah in Judges 4.8. Barak said to Deborah, I will go, uh, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. How pathetic. I'm going to go to battle with this man, but if you wouldn't mind just coming holding my hand, I'll manage it. That's what he's saying to this woman. And she said, well, I'll surely go with you. But nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Women and children, instead of men taking leadership, is a sign of the judgment of God upon the nation. Come with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. It's a terrible picture of judgment throughout the chapter, but it's introduced with a rather striking understanding. For behold, the Lord God of, Israel, of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water. The mighty men, the soldiers, the judges, the prophets, the diviners and the elders, the captain of 50, the man of rank and the counsellor and the skillful magician and the experts in charms. God is taking away everything that could possibly support, defend, lead, help Israel or Judah and Jerusalem. 
Verse 4, and I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. When you've reached the stage that the people running your country are children, you are in deep trouble. And that's the judgment of God. For the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbour, and the youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honourable. And so it goes on, talking about the collapse of society. And you come down to verse 12, My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and you have swallowed up the course of your paths. When we're run by men and by children and by women, we are actually under the judgment of God. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Politically incorrect. About as politically incorrect as you can go. But that's all right. It's Friday night. You need something to rattle your cage. So the man of God is the man who leads God's people. Not the woman, not the child, not the person of God. For manhood involves masculinity and adulthood. Be a man means be a responsible adult. Take responsibility. Stand up and do your duty. That's what it's about to be a man. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 speaks of masculinity. In verse 13 it says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Act like men, be manly, is what they're told to do. How manly is a funny kind of name, isn't it? We basically use the word manly to mean the place where the ferry goes. But of course, that's exactly right. Governor Philip called it manly because when he went across to manly, he was met on the beach by Aborigines and they were the most manly Aborigines he met. In fact, one threw a spear at him and got him. And, uh, and Governor Philip did not punish him because... He was right to defend himself like this. And he was impressed by him. And that's why he called the suburb manly. Because the men over there were manly. There is a word, you see, a manliness word, which has been totally lost from modern civilization of the last 25 years. But it's here in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Now, here is a little note for the sisters who are just sitting here thinking, have I come to the wrong conference? <laughs> I mean, this is a fairly strange place to start, isn't it? So, no, you haven't. And let me tell you why. I've got six reasons why. I wouldn't give six reasons to the men. They couldn't keep their concentration that long. But <laughs> you will be able to keep up with it, dear sisters. One. Because it's important, we base our lives on what the Bible teaches and not what society teaches. What is a man? What is a woman? Turn to the scriptures and you'll find out. Don't turn to the culture around about you because the culture around about you is utterly confused. Two, it's important we read the Bible for its own sake and not to find ourselves in it. You've got to start off with the Bible and say, well, what does the Bible want to say? Not... I've got this problem. Let me see if I can find my answer here. If you start off with you, you will find your answer in the Bible, but it won't be the Bible's answer. You've got to start off saying, well, what does the Bible say? 
And then that tells me what questions I should ask and what answers I will have. Three, mission-minded sisters need to understand the Bible and God's plan and expectations for them and for their menfolk as well. You've got to understand what the Bible is saying about women and about men and about who you are and what you are and who the men are and what they are and what they should be doing. Especially because, point four, that will teach you what you're looking for in, in your menfolk. Especially what to look for in your spouse if you're not married, if you are, too late. <laughs> but also what you are looking for in your leaders, your brothers, your sons. And so how to select them, not brothers, and you can't select them, you're just given them and sons, but at least your leaders and your spouse. How to select them as husbands, as ministers, as leaders. What are you to look for? What, what kind of man is the man that you want to say, that's the man I want to be associated with, that's the man I want to follow? What is the character of that man? If we're not allowed to talk about men as men and their roles and their responsibilities, we're not helping you, sisters, because we're not letting you understand what true manliness is. We're not helping the men because they don't have the faintest clue. But we're not helping you either. And so let us talk about what men and the man of God is and what he's like so that you won't think tall, dark and handsome makes good husbands. So you actually look for something a bit more significant than tall, dark, handsome. And it also help you in how to train them, that is, especially your children. For that is a very important role, to train your own sons. But it's not only them, but to train through Sunday school or through leading youth groups. What are you going to do with teenage boys? How are you going to develop them into the men that they should be? How does a mother, how does a youth group leader, how does an older sister train up younger boys to become the man of God if you never actually address the issue of the man of God. Now, the Bible addresses it. So get rid of the prejudices and listen to what the Bible is saying about the man of God. It also, how do you support them? How do you support those who are your leaders? How will you support your husband to be a man if you don't know what it is to be a man or if you won't let him be a man? If you haven't grasped the concept of manliness, and especially how will you help them if they're not ideal, which is basically all of them. None of them are going to match up to what they are supposed to be. The only woman who ever got a husband like that is my wife, and she's <laughs> got it all covered now. So, but how are you going to know how to support? How do you know what pressures they're under, what the struggle is, what their temptation, if you will never allow a category called man, let alone man of God. Fifthly, this teaches us then the principles of leadership as they apply to, to us sisters as well in leading women and children and in working with men in leadership. See, if I, if I understand what the men folk are supposed to be, it will really help me knowing how I am to relate to them in working in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and in leading other women and children to do the same. So some of the things you hear, you've got to translate a bit to work out why, what this will mean now for me because I'm a woman doing it slightly differently to the way a man will do. 
But the translation is your job because you're cleverer than us. Number six. This teaching of real masculinity will do something else for you too. It'll provide for you men and husbands and leaders who will be a great blessing to you. If we are not allowed to address men as men and tell men what men should be doing, then don't complain that there are no men around, no good men around. It's a strange thing, you see. So many girls will complain, where are the Christian men? There are no good men to marry. There's no fine Christian men. The non-Christian men are everywhere. They're great. They're wonderful. They're knocking on my door. But the Christian men, they're hopeless, pathetic, weak creatures of no consequence and no significance. But every time I try and train men, I have women coming and complaining to me saying, well, why can't I be included in this training as well? Whenever there's a men's convention, a men's breakfast, I always get women saying, why is there something specially for the men? Whenever there's a women's convention, a women's breakfast, I never have any men saying, why aren't, this, why aren't I allowed to go to that? <laughs> Sisters, if you want to have good Christian men, then let us address the men and call upon them to take action as real men and to stop being run around by their women folk. There's my six little points for the women who thought that they've come to the wrong convention because I'm saying that the Bible is not teaching the person of God, but he's teaching the man of God. It's about being a man. Okay. Well, what is the key characteristic of this man of God? Well, he's not a sporting jock. He's not a macho man. He's not a metrosexual man. He's the thinking man of God. Now, I don't think that's most people think is what the role of men is to think. If so, they generally think there's an inadequacy in the equipment. But yet, they are to think. And they're to think not like children, but like men, like adults. So, brothers, grow up is coming the message for you. And we need the message. Part of being a man is to give up on infancy and to grow into maturity. There are several passages that talk of manliness as adulthood, as maturity. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, you'll know the verse. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. See, the difference between a man has got to do with being not a child. When I call you a man, it's because you've grown up. Not a youth, not a child, not a juvenile, not an inadequate, but a man. And that difference is seen in the childish of the behaviour, but also in speech and in reasoning. I spoke like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man... I gave up childish ways. There's a critical, important difference between childishness and manhood. And it has to do with thinking. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Here the word is not man. The uh, authorised version, the King James Version, has it as that, in understanding be men. It's a lovely translation and gave rise to a very famous book written by the principal of Moore College in the 1930s. But 
It's actually not what the Greek is saying. It's in your thinking, be mature. But it's the same concept. There's a difference between being a child and being an adult. And the difference lies in thinking. There's another difference here. It's a difference in sin. In terms of sin, remain babies. Brothers, do not feel like you have to know all the wickednesses of this world. There is nothing wrong with being an infant on the subject of sinfulness. But in terms of thinking, in terms of understanding, we are to be men, mature, adults. Now this is reflected in another passage, if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, where we see the adult church, Ephesians 4. The cathedral congregations have lots of visitors, many of whom don't have Bibles with them, and quite a few of them are quite ignorant of the Bible. And so we've got a standard Bible in the cathedral, and we give out page numbers. And after eight years of giving out page numbers, I've become lazy. It's fascinating how quickly you lose the sense of being able to find things quickly. Some of you are going to have the same problem with your uh, telephones, aren't you? Uh, if you always read your Bible from your telephone, then you'll never be able to find anything on a page, will you? It just, you just kind of roll your fingers. It's the same kind of problem. Uh, Ephesians 4, picking up verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. Again, the word is man there, and and air. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now again, notice the mind, the adult thinking, the understanding. But also notice, men, the stability, the reliability, the convictions that we have. Youthfulness chases after every whim of fashion. You must go here and he's that speaker. Then you've got to go into that conference and listen there. Then you've got to listen to this song, read this book. And you must, you must visit another church. And then you're off to Afghanistan. No, no, I'm going to go to South Africa. No, I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to uh, you just shift and change all the time. Nothing is ever more than a two-week plan. That is not the character of a mature man. That is not the character of a congregation that is mature men. It's not mature, nor is it the way to maturity. Rather, that is by settling down on the long, hard hall of regular, committed fellowship around the Word of God. Be deep in your relationships and deep in your understanding that comes from consistency and that leads to consistency. And if it is that you are to go onto the mission field in full-time Christian ministry, be it at home or overseas, then serious study is a prerequisite and a necessity. 
Uh, we have a stall for more college over here for a very good and serious, obvious reason. It's the place of serious study of the Word of God and preparing yourself for a lifetime of ministry. So, men, be men. Stop flittering around, grow up, learn responsibility, take responsibility. This is so different to the world's advice. You know, you're in your 20s. Well, look, you've got lots of time yet. Go and do this, go that. Go overseas for a couple of years. Go backpacking here. You haven't, you haven't gone walking into Nepal yet? Well, you haven't lived yet, have you? You've got to go and see the Patagonia Plateau. That's just one of those must things of this world, haven't you? And you haven't been to this concert yet, and you haven't done that, and you're still young enough to play football, and you should be doing this, and off and off and on and on and on, and always wanting quick superficial answers, listening to the latest guru to do the thinking for you and the study for you. Lots of dates, lots of fun, a fast, interesting lifestyle without being tied down to any responsibility like raising a family or caring for a wife. But men, it's time to stop living off our parents and off the easy lifestyle. To those who are given much, much is required. And hardly any generation of any human history, of any human society, has been given as much as young Australian men. The trouble with being given a lot is the temptation to fritter all away. Instead of building for the kingdom of God. And so it's time to grow up and be men. So we look at the biblical man of God. For if the key part of the leader of God's people is this adult understanding and maturity, where and how do we gain this knowledge? And so I take you to the two New Testament passages that I referred to at the beginning. 2 Timothy first, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're spending time in this passage, so it's well worth the turn up, 2 Timothy 3. Notice first the context of the passage. That is, verses 1 to 9 speak of the age in which they are living. Verses 10 to 15 will speak of the conflict and difficulty of ministry. And then verse 16 through to chapter 4, 5, verse 5, talks of the scriptures in the ministry. Let me take you through those, the whole chapter, section by section. Firstly, the age in which the ministry of the word is going to take place. Chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, that last phrase of verse 4, that's Australia to a T, isn't it? That's Sydney to a T, isn't it? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I don't know how you'd describe Australia and its culture any more accurately than that little bit. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I'm not saying all women are weak-willed but there are some that are weak-willed. 
And those that are, are easy prey for the, for the cults and the sects that are around in our society. And these people, the, the New Age spirituality people, you ever go and meet up with them? Ever go to that uh, New Age spiritual kind of convention? What's it called? I can't remember now. They have it each year. Body, Mind and Spirit Convention. Have you ever met a group of women? It's nearly all women. It's 80%, 90% women of those things in the New Age spirituality. They're always looking and they've never found an answer yet. But the next stall might give it to them. You know, they can buy crystals. I'm fascinated when people buy crystals. What do you do with them? Stick them in your nostrils, in your ear? How, how does a crystal kind of improve my spiritual being as a person? I mean, it's a great absurdity. And yet they're always going on poor souls, just as Jeans and James opposed Moses. Uh, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding faith. Now don't get too overwhelmed by it, because look what verse 9 is saying. But they'll not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Time after time, new wave of new religion comes into our land and time after time, another one's needed. That, of course, is the history of the charismatic movement, I may say, too. Every five years, the charismatic movement discovers a new thing that is happening. First, it was speaking in tongues. Then it was uh, healing miracles. Then it came about words of prophecy. Then it came on the Toronto blessing. Then it came on the prosperity religion. Every five years, they've got to find something new because they've never found the answer that is plainly there in the word of God. And so verses 10 to, 16, to, uh, verses 10 to 15 speaks to us of the conflict and difficulty of ministering in the context of these times. Verse 10. But you, however, have followed, this is Timothy, Paul's offsider, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, with which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue on what you have learnt and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learnt it. Notice Paul's purposive action, his aim, his faith, his steadfastness, his love. Secondly, notice persecution goes in the country. If you're in an age where people love pleasure rather than God, you are in an age where you'll be persecuted for godliness. They will hate you for what you believe and what you stand for. This talk, if I get to the end of it, I'll give you a classic illustration of it. But persecution is the norm that you should expect to live as a godly person in Christian ministry. Christian ministry is not for wimps. Mission-mindedness is not for wimps. If you are actually going to live the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in Australia, you will be unpopular. Men, grow up, stand up, be ready. Your women folk need you to take the stand. That is a manly thing to do. But you've got to expect the persecution. Have you heard of Pastor Yusef Nadakani? Hands up those who have never heard of Pastor Yusef Nadakani. Yeah. Our media, of course, pays no attention to what is happening in the world, in the areas that matter. Pastor Yusuf is 34. 
His wife's 30, his two children are six or seven years old. He's a pastor in Iran. He was converted when he was 19. He's got a house church with 400 members. He sought to uh, register his house church and complained about certain things and was arrested in 2009. He was condemned to death for renouncing Islam. He's been tried several times, including in this last week. He's been given four opportunities to renounce his Christianity. As I understand it yesterday, he said that Muhammad is a prophet of Islam, but he is not the prophet of God. That is the Lord Jesus. He is due to be executed. And you won't read about it in our newspapers. You don't read about it. You don't see it on the television. You don't hear it on the news broadcasts. But that is what is happening. It's very sad. Very tragic. Only now, at this last minute, a couple of uh, people in the world, and one of the leaders of Britain and the White House, have actually started to complain about this. There is no certainty as to when the execution will take place. It is actually unconstitutional to take place in the constitution of Iran. But the lawyers are saying we've got to follow the teachings of, of uh, Khomeini, who was the man who led the Iranian revolt in the late 80s, and he says anyone who renounces Islam should be put to death. Persecution is inevitable in a sinful world. We don't live in it like that at the moment, do we? We can be thankful to God we don't live in it like that at the moment. But what are we doing with our freedom? This man is willing to stand and die while Australians go to the Sunshine Coast and brown themselves ready for cancer. I mean, it's absurdity that we're in. We have the privileges and the opportunities to speak like people in Iran would long to have. And in this period of time, there'll always be perversion of the truth. The deceived and the deceiving feel sorry for those poor people who come knocking on your door from the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons who are wandering around, the young men who sacrifice their two years of their life or Mr. Hopoati who's sacrificing his great success in football, isn't he? Feel sorry because he is a deceiver, they are deceivers, but they themselves are deceived. Uh, they're not so much evil as deceived, but they perpetuate their deceptions unwittingly, unknowingly. That's the world we're going to minister in. And then look at the role of the scriptures. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learnt and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learnt it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ Jesus. All scriptures are breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded into your suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
So look at the scriptures that you have been given. Given to you, given to Timothy, who has been taught them since his childhood. Timothy was raised by a Gentile father and a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother. And presumably the ones who taught him were his mother and his grandmother. For they are the ones mentioned for us earlier on, of course. They are the ones who have taught him the word of God. Please notice, sisters. Women are critical in the passing on of their faith from one generation to another. As a social uh, observer uh, observed the other day at a conference I was at, it is the faith is passed from women to the next generation. Discipline is passed from men to the next generation. So the next generation will believe as their mother has taught them to believe, but they will do as their father has demonstrated what to do. So if the father doesn't go to church, the children will believe in the things of God, but won't go to church. And as that goes on through three or four generations, they ceased, of course, to believe in the things of God. But it's very interesting to see how just socially observing the impact of mothers in their teaching of the word of God. Notice also that it's something that is learnt. It's not just automatically possessed. There are some Christians who think that I've got a Bible, I'm a Christian, I go to a good Bible teaching church, I don't need to learn any more than that. Secondly, notice that the scriptures that were given to him make him wise to salvation through faith in Jesus. That is because faith comes from hearing the word of God. You don't come to faith by joining a church. By joining a church, you may or may not hear the word of God, depends on the church. But you don't become a Christian by joining. It's not belonging that matters. It's believing that matters. And where does believing come from? It comes from hearing the word of God. Thirdly, notice this word of God is inspired or better expired or as it says here, breathed out by God. When we talk, we breathe and generally we breathe out. I understand there is an African tribe that talks by breathing inwards, but it's the only one in the world. And I'm never sure whether I read that from anymore too, because it was so long ago I read it. I can talk breathing in and breathing out. I have been able to do it. I'm not going to demonstrate it now because it's painful and sounds stupid as well, but it's possible. But generally we talk by breathing out. Our words are noises made on our breath going out. The scripture is God's breathing outwards. This is how God talks. This is God's talk, God's language that we have here. Fourthly, it is profitable, it's beneficial, it has a utility, a purposeful effect in our lives, which is, it is good for teaching, both the activity of teaching and the content of teaching it is good for. And for reproof, challenging you when you're going off the way, don't go that way, that's the wrong way to go, that's reproof, challenging you. And for correction, that is saying, no, no, this is the way to go for straightening out that which is going the wrong way and for training in righteousness, for raising you up like a discipline, like a child in righteousness. And the end point of this is that the man of God, the leader of God's people, will be equipped for every good work that he is to be engaged in. All the good works that God has prepared beforehand for him to walk in, he will gain the equipment to do it by the word of God. That is why we want people who go into full-time ministry professionally as the leaders of God's word to spend at least four years in more college learning the word of God properly. These people who want to be full-time ministers of the gospel by having Mickey Mouse courses on the Bible, part-time, kind of two years, just done at night, a little bit, they have not understood the role and task they're being called to. 
It is a nonsense. We've got to stop this nonsense. Deep and thorough knowledge of God comes from a deep and thorough searching of the scriptures. Properly done. Thoroughly done. And it's a full-time, lifetime experience to grow in the word of God. And that's why the man of God is the man of the book. In private, in church, and in whatever preparation for ministry that lies ahead of him. So let's go back at the beginning and look at the three C's. I don't know how we're going to do it on our screen anymore. What is all you got? The knowledge of God leads to convictions and character that interplay upon each other, which then leads to our competencies. Because it's the knowledge of the word of God. But what is the good works that a man of God is to do, that the word will equip him to do? The word's been given to him so that it will be used by him. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, you see, what has he got to do? He's got to preach the word, God's word. Whoever speaks, let him speak as one who speaks the oracles of God, says 1 Peter. That's the task. I don't mean standing behind a lectern. I don't mean standing in a pulpit, although that's the fundamental activity that we will do in church. But declaring to one and all without fear or favour. Listen to how Paul describes what he did in Ephesus. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the ministry of the word of God. Without fear or favour to anybody and everybody to tell them of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, notice that it's done in season and out of season, whether it's convenient or inconvenient. Not necessarily convenient inconvenient to the other person, convenient or inconvenient to you. Let me try and help you where you are at the moment. What about teaching Sunday school? Children's work is really important. Never underestimate the under eight. My brother and I came into Christ through the work of Sunday school. We're great believers in Sunday school because we were raised in Sunday school, taught the word of God in Sunday school. And the children, and one of our dearest oldest friends, he was converted at eight in Sunday school. When my brother, who was 15, got converted, he, he said to his friend, why didn't you go down the front of the crusade meeting? And his, his friend said, well, because I was converted seven years ago, what's taking you so long? <laughs> The work of the gospel in our Sunday school was powerful. That man stands firm in Christ Jesus to this day, though he is now in his late 60s. Now, the work of God, it's teaching. Okay, teaching Sunday school is very valuable. Why don't you do it? Well, because it'll tie me up too much. You see, if you're going to do it properly, you've got to be willing to go to bed early on a Saturday night. And you've got to be willing to do some preparation each week. No point turning up unprepared to the kids. You're not going to learn the Bible that way. You're not going to be able to teach them that way. And it means you're going to tie up every Sunday morning for the rest of the year, or at least the school terms. That's inconvenient. That's preaching out of season. I don't want to tie up all my Saturdays and all my Sundays. I've got things I want to do. Well, that's not mission-minded, is it? That's not what you're being told here. Oh, I picked on that. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not really. But I could pick on a dozen other ones if we'd like to, to get the same point across. 
And how are we to do it? How he teaches is with a similar set of words. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. The same kind of words that are back there with patience and with teaching. And you do it against your own time and against your own culture because false teachers are everywhere. And then he winds up saying, as for you, that is you, Timothy, but Timothy's not unique in this. There are some characteristics of it that are unique. But as for you, be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Okay, well, that tells us a lot about the character of the man of God. He really will be a man of the word. But what about that other passage which speaks of the man of God? 1 Timothy 6, come back there. 1 Timothy 6, this is the getting towards the end point. 5.6 is a very brief little essay <laughs> that I'm going to read from a newspaper. It's got to be brief because I didn't write it. 1 Timothy 6, again, look at the context. Look at the context back there in verse Oh, pick it up at the end of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with that, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen and can see. To him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. I didn't need to read the last verse, but once you get on to Jesus like that, I couldn't resist it. <laughs> so here's the man of the word teaching against the culture and time, but notice the contrasting character of false teachers. They are full of conceit, ignorant, controversy, quarrelsomeness, divisiveness. But notice especially they are preaching for money. They are making themselves rich and comfortable out of preaching. So the desire of riches, which leads you into all manner of sin. Such a word for today, isn't it? For our society is so materialistic, the idea I'm going to lose economic security, lose out on trips and houses and cars and boats and fine restaurants because I'm going to enter into some kind of ministry of the gospel that will deprive me of the economic security and safety that I've been building for, that my parents wish for me, or the significance of being as rich as I can be. Many people will not willingly frame life around the gospel. 
So they won't go to a college full time to spend four years. They'll spend five years at a university. You know, getting commerce law so as to become a rich lawyer. But you say, well, now you need to spend four years at college to be trained to be a minister of the word of God. They say, oh, gee, I couldn't spend four years. It has never been cheaper and easier to go to college. And never have we had so many people complaining about how much it costs. We have never had more money than we have today. And never have we had so many people wanting to do part-time work because, oh, I haven't got the years, I haven't got the time, I haven't got the money. There's a profound materialism that is choking the spirituality out of evangelical Christians in our city and making us unwilling to have any sacrificial sense of living by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. There's something seriously wrong here. And so what is he to do? But as for you, verse 11, flee these things, pursue righteousness. I've summarised it in two words on the outline, the one negative, the other positive. He is to flee and to pursue. He's to flee the falsehood mentioned in the previous paragraph. Flee the false teaching. Flee the love of money. Flee the senseless temptations that snare you. And he is to pursue Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. That can sound so boring. But this is reality, men. This is growing up into leadership. These are the men of quality and stability upon whom families and society and the spread of the gospel depend. This is the man to be looking for, my sisters. I don't care if he's short, fat and squat. If he's a man of steadfastness and godliness and gentleness and faith and love, he is a great husband. He is a man worthy of support. He is a man who will lead you to the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day, pure and spotless, without blemish, fault or stain. Sisters, it's important to see the man of God as he should be, so as to know how to help them to be that. Men, it's time you were. It is now too late for you to continue as children. Sometime, somewhere, you have to grow up. I also went to the University of Sydney and did an arts degree. But I did it because I was told I was too young to go to more college. So what do you do when you haven't got anything to do? I did an arts degree at the <laughs> University of Sydney. I frittered away four years of my life becoming a geographer. Geography is an archetypal form of education in an arts degree, isn't it? Because when you finish it, people say, well, what do you do with that? And you don't do anything with it. You just are <laughs> a geographer. But at least I had the privilege and opportunity of meeting my wife and growing up a little bit during those years. But that's all I did at university was grow up. But you can hang around there long enough never to grow up, can't you? 
It's an extension of your childhood is university. It's a healthy, happy extension. I'm not encouraging anybody to drop out of university. It's a healthy, happy encouragement, but it's an extension of childhood. Sometimes, somewhere, you've got to go out and make your own living. Sometimes, somewhere, you've got to take responsibility for yourself. That's only the beginning, men. You've got to take responsibility for your wife and for your children, for your society and for your church and for this world and for the proclamation of the gospel. Grow up. Be men. And girls, when you see them doing that, support them, encourage them, help them, assist them. Because they're the men who will make your life. And so, look at these men. They must pursue. The word is to, to, to run after, persecute, prosecute, to secure these things. And in doing this, we will be fighting. Because that's what men are made for, fighting. That's what I'll get to at the last of our talks on prayer. We're to fight the good fight of faith. For this stuff is not easy. It's easy to be a playboy. This stuff is not for wimps and gutless wonders. This requires you to stand up and be counted day after day, decision after decision. For this is the character of the man of God, framed and shaped by the word of God, leading by the same word that shaped him. He is the one who is single-mindedly standing against the winds of culture and the world, a man who is fleeing the temptations of the world to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness as he fights the good fight of faith. So let me finish with a little article I read in the newspaper this morning, or part of it. It's about Alan Green Graham. Hands up those who have heard of Alan Graham. Yeah, it's about Alan Graham. It's a good story, isn't it? My wife has. I didn't know she had. The author, who's a Muslim, I need to warn you. The author says, Alan Graham was a was must be bemused to find himself standing in the celebrity circus ring, suddenly lit up by the blinding light of publicity. An unassuming 61-year-old farmer from Bangor in Northern Ireland. He had given permission for a film crew to shoot a video of the pop idol, and I'm 66, so I don't know her name either, Rihanna, on his land. <laughs> Mr. Graham had no idea who she was. But he didn't like what she was doing in his fields. <laughs> Just as he was passing by on his tractor, she threw off her top and bra for the benefit of the rolling cameras. Being a Christian of deep faith, he was unhappy the crew were filming what he believed to be pornographic images. So he politely asked them to leave his field. And they did. The story has spread around the world, and despite the fact that Mr. Graham insists that he parted amicably with her and her crew, there seems to be disbelief that the principled farmer did not prostrate himself before the half-naked diva rather than a victor from his land. For such effrontery, he has been pilloried by the show business world, the media and ardent fans. 
on Radio 2's Jeremy Vine show yesterday, a brash and brassy journalist from the Belfast Telegraph accused Mr Graham of dragging her people back to the joyless days of terrorism, of putting back recovery and progress. She wailed that everyone around the world would look down again on Northern Ireland and see its people as backward. A local woman called in to complain. Farmer Graham had fatally wounded their tourism industry with his po-faced Christian belief. She said that because the filming had been stopped, the province would miss all those visitors who would have visited the area to see the field where she jiggled her stuff in her new video. Elsewhere, Mr Graham has been attacked as for being a fundamentalist Christian and an Ulster Unionist, as if such allegiances automatically means that he has no place in an advanced society. As a liberal and a Muslim who lives in London, I confess it is unlikely I would have much in common with Farmer Graham, with his faith or his politics. It's possible I wouldn't even like the man very much. But that's not the point. I hugely admire what he did. In his small, humble way, this farmer demonstrated a kind of strength and conviction that used to be commonplace in society and which, to our shame, has almost disappeared. He had the chance to make a tidy sum of money from one of the most successful pop singers on the planet, but was not prepared to sell out his principles for a fat cheque from anyone, however famous or important they might be. Instead, Mr Graham made a brave stand against the two of the worst excesses of modern life, the sexualisation of society and our celebrity culture. There's a man, isn't it? There's a man of God, a little man. No one's ever heard of him. He's lived 61 years and I get his, his name's never been in the newspaper. Now he's on YouTube all around the world. And the world is making fun of him. But yet there are other people who see he's not a figure of fun. He's a man of character. He's a real man. He's a man of God. He's willing to stand up and take responsibility for his land, for his culture, for his society, for his faith. That's what you are to be a man of God. That's mission-mindedness. That I'm going to frame all my life by the gospel that I believe in. Every part of my life, at whatever cost, doesn't matter how much it's against the winds of culture and fame and whatever, I'm going to do that. It's the kind of men you want, women, isn't it? And so that's why we mustn't take it out of the Bible and just talk about persons. This is the men's stuff that we need to understand. Well, now, we won't go for question time. You've done really well. Those of you who are still awake, are we going to sing or are we just going to go to supper? Andrew, what are we going to do now? Uh, we might have the song right now. The song right now would be good. So while the musos get themselves ready, I'll lead us in prayer, shall I? It'll be a short prayer because people have got their eyes closed and they're tired. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that true one who was the Son of Man. We thank you, Father, for him his pursuit of righteousness and holiness, his maturity in thinking and understanding, his self-sacrifice and willingness to lay all aside for that which is the truth. We thank you, Father, for the responsibility he took to lay down his life for the salvation of mankind. 
And we pray, Father, that you would so bestow the spirit of your Son upon us here this night and in our fellowship together, that we may, as men, stand up for you, for the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in a sinful, untaught world. That you would enable our sisters to raise up the next generation of men to be men. That you would enable them to support those men who want to stand for the truth. We pray especially, Father, this night for that pastor in Iran. Please protect him, Father. Change the minds of the court. Time after time, as you know better than we, under enormous pressure, he has refused to renounce your son. Strengthen him, please, Father, this night. Be with his dear wife and his little ones. Give them courage and boldness not to weaken, not to withdraw from testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you spared the Apostle Paul over and again, so we pray you would spare him, that he may return to his family, to his church, and continue to give the leadership that he is exercising in the courts. And we pray for this Irish farmer, Father, and thank you for his Christian faith and his willingness to put it into practice even under the persecution and the ridicule that is heaped upon him. Help him to know that he has done the right. Encourage him in it, please, Father. Help him to continue to use this to give testimonies of the Lord Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for these two men and pray for every man that is here, that each one of us may grow to be your man, whose character reflects the character of the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.